Well, I hope you're finding your way to the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. The book of 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the city of Corinth. And we have been working our way through this book of the Bible uh, this year, and we're nearing the end. We're going to wrap up 1 Corinthians chapter 14 today, looking at verses 26 through 40. Now, one of the things about this text this morning, even even before I read it, is the fact that Paul is shushing the church. Now, that, that may sound a little bit rude. You know, we don't do that. Don't shush people. But Paul is shushing the church. And actually, there are times, aren't there? Times when we should be shushed. I don't even know if that's a word. I, I was thinking, just as I was, I was getting ready to, to walk up here, I was thinking about Peter. And Peter's having this amazing moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember this? I mean, an amazing moment. He's, he's one of the few disciples that gets to see Jesus. He's brighter than a launderer could launder his clothes, brighter than the sun. I mean, this amazing moment. And Peter doesn't know what to do. Do you remember this? He's, he's all nervous doesn't know what to do, so he opens his mouth. Big mistake, Peter, right? Usually when Peter opens his mouth, his foot uh, lodges there. And, and this was the case here. He opens his mouth and he begins to say, I think we should make a, a tent for Moses and we should make a tent for Elijah, make a tent for Jesus. Do you remember? He's babbling on and on. And all of a sudden, a voice from heaven shushes Peter. Do you remember this? <laughs> The father says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I think there are moments in our journey where maybe we're more interested in talking than listening. And Paul, in this text, is encouraging the church to listen. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. When I finish verse 40, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? 
If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and then look into it. Father, we give thanks for your holy, inspired, infallible word. And we ask that you would open our ears to hear. Help us, O Lord, to receive your truth and submit to it. Give us, O Lord, this morning the obedience of faith. In other words, we trust you enough to obey you. And so, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. What we are not, we ask that you would make us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, many of you know I'm a father of four with kids ranging from 20 years old all the way down to 11. And here's what that means. It means through the years, my kids have been in all kinds of sports. I've been kind of a soccer mom and dad sometimes. You know what that's like. Rec leagues, boys and girls club, fun runs, high school athletics. There was this one time, uh, one of my children was in the boys and girls club basketball. It was me and where's Brian O'Neill this morning? It was, it was he and I, and we were, like, we were like the half court cheerleaders, if you know Brian O'Neill. We nearly got thrown out of the boys and girls club for such positive cheering. Um, but I, I'll tell you, you've, you've got all these different spots, rec leagues, boys and girls club, fun runs, high school athletics and the like. And there is one common denominator with all these athletic clubs or teams. And that is how the first day of practice unfolds. Have you ever shown up to the first day of practice in some of these things? Pick your sport. It doesn't matter. It could be at a swimming pool. It could be at a track, a basketball court, a soccer field. Doesn't matter. Here's what's going to look like. You've got all these random kids there, and they're basically doing whatever they want. I mean, they're showing off their skills. Soccer balls are flying this way and that. There are people, you're at a pool, there, there are people jumping into the pool, some doing backstroke, others doing the butterfly. It's a mess. You're on the track field, you've got people jumping in the sand, others galloping over hurdles. I mean, basketballs flying off the rim, hitting bystanders in the head. You know what this is like. I mean, that's the common denominator of all these sports. This first day of practice is utterly chaotic until, until the coach shows up and blows the whistle. All of a sudden, with the deafening shrill of this little device, noise is turned into silence. Chaos turns into these single file lines. Bedlam turns into an intentional practice, and suddenly there's some order. Now, when there's order, the team can finally make some progress. And I think it's, this is kind of the truth of all of that. Order is essential 
for building sports teams. And I'd say this, order is essential for building up the body of Christ. Without order, all you have is this random chaos going on. And that's the sort of mess that Paul is speaking into in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It's like the first day of practice. This church has all this stuff going on. Some people are chattering in spirit utterances on one side of the room. Others are singing songs on the other part of the room. Some are trying to pray. A teacher is attempting to give a lesson. Some people are trying to prophesy, and it's all happening in this muddled chaos. And so what goes on? Paul steps up, and he, he kind of blows a whistle. He speaks into this situation. Now, in chapter 14, after addressing issues about building up the body of Christ and making sure that the leveraging of gifts is intelligible, he turns his attention in this final section of the chapter to orderly worship. Look at verse number 26 again. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And how are things going to be done for building up? Skip down to verse number 40. This is how it's going to be done so that the body of Christ is built up. All things should be done decently and in order. What is Paul doing in this text? He's calling for peace instead of confusion. He's calling for limits instead of free-for-alls. He wants organization in the gathering of God's people instead of pandemonium. In other words, he believes that if the church is going to be built up, it needs to pursue orderly worship. Now, here's how this text unfolds. Paul basically looks into three different case studies. That's how verses 26 through 40 unfold. And in each one, he's going to say that certain people need to be quiet. In all three instances, there's going to be some sort of verbal participation in the church that's distracting to the congregation. And so Paul is going to call for silence. Now, I want you to notice the three repeated words, silence, silence, silence in the text. Look at verse number 28. If you circle in your Bible, you could circle it there. Verse 28, you see the word silent in the church. If you look again in verse number 30, you find it again. Let the first be silent. And then in verse number 34, you see it again, silent in the churches. And so in these three case studies, we learn that there are times in the pursuit of orderly worship that people may need to be silent. Here's the, here's the first case study. And here's what we learn. Orderly worship may mean that tongue speakers need to be quiet. And you see that in verses 27 and 28. Remember what Corinth was like. In Corinth, it was this environment of all these excited people. They're impatiently trying to express themselves. 
Now, they didn't have microphones back then, but if they did, you would imagine the Corinthians snatching the microphone from one another, trying to say their thing, speak in tongues, or offer a prophecy, or a word of knowledge, or a word of wisdom, and they've got all of this going on. And Paul basically blows the whistle like a coach and says there needs to be order. In verse number 27, notice how Paul limits the number of tongue speakers. Do you see it in verse 27? If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. And what that means is that you have a gathering of a congregation. It's not going to work for everybody to be breaking out in tongue speaking. That's actually a violation of what Paul instructs the church to do. So if you see evidences of that on some TV show or, or, or some gathering that you happen to attend where all of a sudden all of this pandemonium breaks out and people are getting utterances of the Spirit and speaking in various languages, that's not what Paul instructs the church to do. He limits the number of tongue speakers to two or maybe even three. Notice next, he li- limits the expression of their gifts to sequential communication. Look again at verse number 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. Notice the next phrase. And each in turn. And so there has to actually be a sequence to this. Are you catching the vibe of order here? We're not letting everybody just break out in tongue speaking, only two or three. And even those two or three can't take three different mics and all do it at the same time. No, it's not a trio. It has to be a solo, and they have to take their turns. It's each one in turn. So he limits the number. He limits it to a sequential communication. Go one by one, he says. And then notice finally in this section, he he limits the public expression of the gift to times when there are interpreters. So if this is going to be for the church, then there must be an interpreter. And you see that at the end of verse number 27, and let someone interpret. But if there, verse 28, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and and to God. It's not acceptable for worship gatherings to have someone using a gift of tongues without the complimentary gift of interpretation for the gathered church. If there's no one to interpret, Paul makes it clear, let the tongue speaker keep quiet. Now, I think there are a few important lessons we can learn from this. As you're wondering, okay, now what do we do with this? I think there are a few important lessons. First, orderly worship. I think this is what Paul's trying to teach here. Orderly worship trumps the desire to use your personal gifts. In other words, you may show up to a gathering of God's people and have this burning desire, I've got to use my gift, I've got to use my gift, I've got to use my gift. And Paul is saying, wait a second, orderly worship is more important than your personal desire. You may want to express your giftedness in the public gathering. You may have something meaningful to contribute, but it has to be done in proper order, Paul says. Your desires, I mean, you could put the your desires don't set the agenda for the public gathering. And that's true of all of us. Have you ever been in a situation where someone was out of order because they were so fixated on what they wanted to do that they, were, that they, they totally didn't understand the setting or the situation? 
They were forcing their way, and it was just out of place and out of order. There's this, um, and I, listen, I'm going to hand in my man card, and I'm just going to say it, okay? There's this unforgettable scene in Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Not that I've seen it, but I've heard of other men who have watched it. There's this unforgettable scene in Pride and Prejudice where this Miss Mary Bennett, without invitation, stands up, cuts across this high-class social gathering, this high-society gathering, and sits down at the pianoforte. She's at this fancy gathering, and she just begins to play the piano. And the notes start out well enough. But if any of you have seen this and you remember the scene, her singing leaves much to be desired. So she's in high society. All of the most influential people are there. She cuts across the room because she desires to play. No one else desires her to play. But she desires to play. She sits down, begins to sing poorly. And, and what's fascinating in this, uh, in this movie is you watch how people respond. Her sisters are mortified off on one side of the room. Her father buries his head like, oh no. People begin to walk out, and this is my favorite part of the scene. Dogs outside begin to howl. You know, <laughs> her singing is so bad. Dogs are howling. And finally, the father gets up, and this is what he says. You've delighted us long enough. <laughs> and scooches her off of the piano. Now, she wanted to use her gift, but I want to suggest this. It was totally out of place. It was out of social order. And it didn't benefit the group. And I think sometimes that can happen in the gathering of God's people. So orderly worship trumps your personal desire to use your gift. Here's a second lesson we can learn from this section. And that is that too much of a good thing isn't always good. Too much of a good thing isn't always good. Paul limits the number of people using a particular gift in public worship. Now you could be like, yeah, but they're gifts of the Spirit. They're gifts of the Spirit. They're good. And Paul says, yes, yes, but too much of a good thing isn't always good. We're about aiming for the common good, not our personal desires. And so Paul limits the expression of tongues to two or three. I, uh, I read about this, uh, this service uh, in the 1800s that was being led by the famous American evangelist D.L. Moody. He was uh, at this, this great gathering and a man was asked to open the gathering up in prayer. And so the man came up and he, he decided to take advantage of the opportunity to speak. Have you ever seen this before? Someone who never gets the mic suddenly gets the mic and they're going to make up for lost time. You know what I mean? And that's how this guy was with prayer. He was asked to give the prayer and he just went on and on and on and on and on and he just wouldn't stop. And finally, Moody is sensing that the prayer is killing the meeting rather than blessing the people. He interrupts the guy praying and says, well, our brother finishes his prayer. Let's go ahead and sing a hymn. And just moves the whole group into singing. And I just thought about this. Well, isn't prayer a good thing? Yes. Uh, but even good things need limits. Here's a third lesson I think we can learn from this section, and that's this. That gifts should be controlled by the recipient of those gifts. In other words, God gives these gifts to his people, 
But those things should be under control. Remember, a fruit of the Spirit is self-control. He gives these gifts, but it doesn't mean there's supposed to be these outbursts of ecstatic utterances, unrestrained spiritual expressions, overwhelming eruptions of speaking in tongues. That's not what Paul has in mind for the gathered church. I realize there are groups where that is the characteristic of their gathering, but that's not what Paul is instructing. He clearly says, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church. Do you realize what that indicates? It indicates you could have a gift. You could have this gift wanting to have expression, but you have the control to keep quiet because only two or three can do it. In other words, it indicates that the gifts of the Spirit should not overcome someone with uncontrollable outbursts. Uh, one, one theologian, Sam Storms, he's a continuationist, in fact. But he writes this about spiritual gifts. He says, there is no indication anywhere in the Bible that people who speak in tongues lose self-control or become unaware of their surroundings. Paul insists that the one who is speaking in tongues can start and stop at will. In other words, God has given a gift, but he expects you to control its usage, to leverage it appropriately at appropriate times, in appropriate measure, with appropriate restraint, so that an orderly expression builds up the church. Okay, so this is our first case study that Paul's dealing with in this text. Orderly worship may mean that tongue speakers need to be quiet. Now he moves on to another scenario in the text. Here's his second case study, and this is what he teaches. Orderly worship may mean that those giving prophecies need to be quiet. So there are times tongue speakers need to be quiet. There are times those giving prophecies need to be quiet. And you see this in verses 29 through 33. In a similar way as he did with tongues, Paul limits the number of prophets speaking in the service to just two or three. Look at verse number 29. Let two or three prophets speak. Okay, again, we have a limited number. Additionally, he goes on and he expects that the prophecies are going to be judged or weighed. Maybe the word evaluated would be helpful. Again, in verse number 29, he says, he says let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh, evaluate, judge what is said. Paul is saying this, people can't just claim to be prophesying and say whatever they want. Their message should be weighed or evaluated or checked, and if necessary, curbed. Finally, the thing he says here is that this should be done one at a time. Notice verse number uh, 31. He says, one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Again, we don't bring three prophets up here to all speak at the same time. Instead, the words of prophecy should be done in sequential order. He's aiming at order in worship. Now, I think there are a few lessons we can learn from this section on prophecy. First, I think we can learn that order doesn't exclude spontaneity. Let me just say that again. Order in worship doesn't exclude spontaneity. I think sometimes the only way we conceptualize order 
is to think about lists being made, maybe even a week or two in advance. We think about time allotments divvied out down to the minute. We think about a worship preview that's been sent, an order of worship that's been printed, a manuscript that's been finalized, a service team that's been established, a prayer that's been scripted, and it's all very orderly. I want you to see something about the Corinthian gathering. It seems as though the church of Corinth had people receiving revelation for prophecy in the moment. Notice verse number 30. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Here's the picture. In Corinth, maybe someone had received revelation. They're prophesying. They're delivering that to the church. And while they're finishing up, someone else in the congregation receives a revelation and they have a word for the congregation as well. Paul says, remember, there's only two or three that can do this. They have to be in order. As the one is wrapping up and the Spirit's leading another, then the first one brings it to a close, lands the plane, and is quiet so that the next one can come. But notice how it's almost as if it's happening right there. So Paul, on one hand, is able to talk about orderly worship, but he's not killing spontaneity. In other words, the leading of the Spirit in that moment. And I think this is an important lesson for us to learn, that is that order doesn't exclude spontaneity. There didn't seem to be an alphabetized list of participants at Corinth. The Spirit seemed to reveal an insight that was important for the church in that moment, and in an orderly fashion, the prophets, one or two of them, shared it with the congregation. Now, the reason I'm spending a moment on this is because I think that our tendency would probably be to err on the side of structure and planning. And you could probably say that about much of the Western church. I mean, think about this word. I mean, what does this word conjure up in your mind? Are you ready for it? It starts with the letter L, liturgy. liturgy, <laughs> order. <laughs> I mean, like a three-year Christian calendar that you rotate through, passages that are already determined, very, very set. The Western church at large probably errs on the side of structure and planning ahead. And it may be because they're attempting to avoid bedlam, but our rigidity could actually lead to boredom or even bondage. What do I mean by bondage? I mean, like we're bound to a certain order instead of a submission to the Spirit. And I think this is something we can learn from this text. A fear of rowdiness can actually swing all the way over to dullness in the gathering of God's people. Now, although the Spirit can lead just as well on a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Friday, we have, to be, we have to realize the Spirit can also lead on a Sunday, right? And so in all of our planning, I, I loved how Pastor John said this in the opening of the service, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory is of the Lord. In other words, the Lord is going to work in that moment. And I think there's a, there's a fine balance between those but for us, probably the question we need to ask is, are we willing to let the Spirit break in and change the preset course of our gathering as long as it's done in an orderly way? Because order doesn't exclude spontaneous, in-the-moment work of the Spirit. Here's a second lesson I think we can learn from this section on prophecy. 
and that is this. Words of instruction need to be evaluated. Do you remember in this little section right here, Paul's talking about these prophets. There has to be two or three of them. But he says this, let the others, verse 29, let the others weigh what is said. Words of instruction need to be evaluated. Now, I think this is important in an age of maybe celebrity teachers or customary speakers where you just show up, you get, you, you get so accustomed to just listening to this person that you no longer scrutinize their message. Paul is saying when these prophets stand up and give a word of instruction, it needs to be weighed. And I think what that means is that the, the church needs to evaluate speaking gifts. You're sitting here on a Sunday. You shouldn't be falling asleep. Well, there's one person in here that can fall asleep. It's Ivy. She's the newly adopted little baby in the back. This is her first church service this morning, and she was sleeping on the way in. I said, this is the beginning of a great track record right here. You see this? Well, you shouldn't be sleeping, though. You should be asking questions like, does this message glorify God? Does it accord with scripture? Does it build up the church? Is it spoken in love? Does the speaker demonstrate self-control? You're evaluating or weighing the message. Listen to what Paul told the church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. He says this, do not despise prophecies. But then he goes on, he says, but test everything. You should be showing up and weighing this. I think that doesn't point to us being skeptics who quench the spirit, but it, but it shouldn't also be fools who gullibly believe everything that's said. We need to weigh these words. Instruction should go through a grit. Back in 2006, there was a famous preacher. His name is Creflo Dollar. He's a prosperity gospel preacher, which is actually a heresy, but he told his congregation that he was going to believe God for a $65 million Gulfstream private luxury jet. He was going to believe God for that. And God had a plan to prosper his life. It was the devil who was trying to discredit him. And God wants people to be rich, starting with him. <laughs> starting with his $65 million private jet. And this was his word to these people. I don't know about you, but those people should be testing that. They should test spiritual instruction like 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. But it's not just in Creflo Dollar's gathering, it's here too. You need to test the word. Weigh the instruction. I think that's what Paul is saying to the church. Evaluation, in other words, is a Christian obligation. Here's a third thing I think we can see from this portion of the text about prophecy, and that is this. The character of our worship should reflect the character of God. Notice in this text again, here he is talking about prophets. Verse number 29. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first 
be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. Look at verse 33. What does he ground this in? Why should there be order in the service when it comes to prophecy? He says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The character of our worship should reflect the character of God. Paul's arguing for order in prophecy because we serve a God of order. In other words, prophets should give way. They shouldn't be talking over one another. They should be peaceful in their worship because it reflects a peaceful God. We don't need confusing chatter. We don't need people trying to talk all at the same time. We don't need messy communication because it doesn't reflect the character of God. Okay, what is Paul doing in the text so far? He's saying there are times when tongue speakers need to be quiet for orderly worship. He says orderly worship may also mean that those giving prophecy need to be quiet. Now here's his last one. His final case study is in verses 33 through 35. And here he teaches that orderly worship may mean that married women need to be quiet. Now this is the part where most people wake up. Okay, tongues, prophecy. What, women? What? <laughs> there are times when silence is important for orderly worship. And here, he applies it to women. Take a look at the text, verse number 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now some of you are wondering, what is Paul saying here? Does he mean what he says? Some of you, on the other hand, are aggravated inside. Is Paul a patriarchal pig? Is this some sort of chauvinistic addition to the text to keep women subjugated? Is the Apostle Paul mansplaining here? What is going on? Now, before we cancel the Apostle or sign him up for sensitivity training, we actually need to understand what he means in the text. Now, this is important because you, you may feel like certain things about this. If you read that, and it bothers you, but before you jump to your conclusions, let me explain the text. The first thing I think we can say is that Paul is not mandating absolute silence for women in the church. I think we know that because of the parallelism in this text. Think about these three scenarios, the three uses of the word silent. In each of these scenarios, the first one with tongues, the next one with prophecy, the next one with women, it's not absolute silence. It's actually contextual silence. It's selective silence. It's qualified quietness. There's, there's some sort of particular context in which someone needs to be quiet. With tongue speakers, with these prophets, and now with women. I also think that we can come to the conclusion that Paul is not mandating absolute silence. Because if we read the whole book of 1 Corinthians, we realize that's not what he's teaching. 
For instance, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, Paul is actually commending women who pray in the church gathering and prophesy in the church gathering with their heads covered. So he's not saying in chapter 11, there's women in the church gathering who pray and prophesy with their heads covered and then coming to chapter 14 and contradicting himself. No, he's not saying that. When he talks about the silence of women, there must be some contextual element that helps guide us to what he's saying. And I think there is. Notice how contextually in chapter 14, the statement about women being silent in the church falls right on the heels of his instruction about weighing prophecy. Do you remember there's only two or three prophets and prophecy must be weighed, evaluated, authoritatively judged. I think what Paul is saying in this text, and many New Testament scholars agree with this, is that he's calling for silence in terms of women publicly challenging prophecy or authoritatively judging prophecy in the church. And I specifically think it probably deals with uh, wives and their husbands because later on he's going to say, you know, a, a woman shouldn't do this with a man, she should be quiet, but he, she should ask her man at home. Do you see that? Let them ask their husbands at home. So specifically, I think he's talking about a married woman. Think about how difficult it would be for a wife to portray biblical submission to her husband if she's authoritatively cross-examining him and interrogating him in public. I mean, just think about how difficult that would be for her. I think that's what it would have felt like for a woman to weigh the prophecy of her husband in front of the whole congregation. I mean, just to drive this point home, have you, ever been in the, have you ever been in the company of a couple who's having a public disagreement? I mean, have, you, have, you, have you ever been in that situation? It's, it's rather uncomfortable. You're invited over to a dinner party, you're sitting at the table, and the husband and wife are just having one of those evenings. And you just don't feel really good. You're trying to escape from the dinner party. Well, it's been good being here. Well, I think it's kids need to go to bed. Well, you're like, what can I do to get out of this? Because I feel very uncomfortable here because this husband and wife are at each other. Have you ever observed one spouse questioning or confronting the other in front of other people. It's a bit of an uncomfortable situation. And the reason it's uncomfortable is, you, is because you realize there are relational ramifications at stake here. And you don't want to be party to it. You want to get away. And Paul is trying to tell this church, we want to avoid those situations in the public gathering of God's people. You do that at home. <laughs> You want to question, you want to weigh or judge the prophecy of your husband? Ask him those questions at home in private. Don't do them in front of the gathered congregation. I think in an honor-shame culture where Paul is dealing with the church of Corinth, he wanted to help wives not humiliate their husbands. He wanted to uphold the biblical roles of marriage where husbands are loving servant leaders and wives are joyfully submissive helpers. He wanted that to be the harmony in the church. 
He wanted to prevent women from exerting authority in the congregation in such a way that they inadvertently painted a sordid picture of Christianity to the rest of the watching world. So Paul tells the women to wait until they get home, I think, to evaluate prophecy. Now, interestingly, in this text, there is a parallel with 1 Corinthians 11. I'm not going to go back and teach 1 Corinthians 11. We've already done that. You can listen online. But there's a parallel in Paul's reasoning process. In other words, the reason he does this is the same reasoning he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with head covering and a wife's submission to her husband, where he calls wives to be like Jesus, where the son submitted to the father, he, he calls wives to submit to their husbands, and, and he uses the same three-part reasoning process. He says, if you would poke and prod at your husband's prophecy in public, it would be a cultural disgrace. Verse 35, it would be shameful. Second, it would be contrary to the universal practice of the churches. You, you would be out of line with all of the other churches who are upholding the biblical roles of husbands and wives in their public gatherings. And then third, you would be contrary to creation order. He, he says in verse number 34, as it's written about in the law, probably referring to like Genesis chapter two. Okay, so as we think about all of this, these three different scenarios, you have tongue speakers, and there are times when they need to be quiet. There are prophets, and there are times when they need to be quiet. There are married women, and there are times when they need to be quiet. And the point of all this is so that there can be orderly worship that builds up the church. Paul is aiming for order and propriety in worship. Now, some of you might be here today, and you're like, well, I'm not yelling or stepping over another person or grabbing the microphone from somebody. But I just want to ask you a question. I wonder, are you positively contributing to order in the gathered assembly of God's people? You see, it's not just misapplied gifts that distract the church. Do you know there could be other distractions that draw away from orderly worship? People talking, having their own conversation during a teaching time. Others coming and going during key portions of the message, unruly children. I, I don't know what it is, but there can be things that hinder people from concentrating in worship. And I think there could be an overarching principle here. We all need to positively contribute to orderly worship. Why? Well, because that's how the body is going to be edified or built up. Now, when a sports coach comes in on that first day of practice and blows the whistle. He's trying to change bedlam and chaos into order and growth. When the coach blows the whistle, he's, trying, he's not trying to be a killjoy. He's trying to make this team better. But I want to acknowledge this morning that when someone blows a whistle on our activity, it's not always easy to receive, is it? When God says things at times, he breaks into our patterns of life, it's not always easy for us to receive. I mean, the question we're going to be asked is, will we submit to the coach or are we going to keep trying to do things our own way? Are we going to receive his instruction or are we going to follow and make up our own rules along the way? 
This passage concludes, verses 36 through 40, the passage concludes with Paul encouraging the church to receive his apostolic authority. I mean, if you've been tracking with us from chapters 12 through 14, Paul has said some pretty hard things to the church of Corinth. And he gets to the end and he almost anticipates that there are going to be these people saying, well, I have the spirit too. Well, these are my gifts and I think I should be able to leverage them as I want. He kind of anticipates that and he, he calms them down and says, wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Will, will you submit? Will you receive this instruction? Culture doesn't set the agenda. We don't set the agenda. Paul says, the commands of the Lord set the agenda. Paul questions these struggling Corinthians in verse number 36. It's almost as if he's saying, did the word of God come from you? Does the word of God only reside with you? Are you the sole keepers of God's word? Paul says in verse 37, the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If you don't recognize Christ's words, then you're not recognized by Christ as his own. In other words, put away your selfish ambitions. Put away your competitive spirits and submit to scripture. Seek edifying intelligible, orderly worship for the glory of God. May the Lord help us pursue that together.